It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and Happy New Year! <laughs> we all made it to a new year in 2022, and I'm so excited that you decided um, in this new year to tune in to us here to get the civics lesson that we all need and wish that we had when we were in school. But it doesn't matter, you're here now, and I am happy that you are here now. And so I wanna talk about really quickly what we're going to start off this morning. We've talked about this issue for a number of episodes in different categories, but this morning we're gonna talk about housing and specifically the policies and terminology, sort of your basic primer on housing policy in this country. And this is gonna be the beginning of a series throughout the year. We're gonna have lots of different conversations about housing, what affordable is, what, what it should be, how do you create policy in large metropolitan urban areas that house people people versus home ownership programs versus rural programs, you know, all of those different things. And so if you have suggestions, as usual, of people, yourself or others that you know, who should be part of this series, who should have a conversation with us about creating better housing policy in this country, feel free to send it in. You know what to do. But so for our primer conversation, I wanted to bring someone to the front of the class who has a wealth of experience, I think over like 30 years of experience creating housing policy, who currently or most recently was in Atlanta creating affordable housing policy. And I'm so thankful that he answered the call to be part of our conversation this morning. Welcome to the front of the class for the very first time, Eugene Jones. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Just so happy. Thank you very much. So, you know, I want to begin, as I mentioned, talking about like sort of the basics of what people should know about housing policy. And you wrote a book on it. So we're going to have a whole hour to talk about that. But first, I want to start where we start with every guest that comes to the front of the class with you telling us the story of your first civic action. Uh, Probably when I uh, turned 16, graduated from high school. And I just, my dad couldn't afford to take, send me to college, and so I decided to enlist in the Air Force. As soon as I turned 17, he signed me over to the United States Air Force and spent 10 years, 10 wonderful years traveling the world and, and having a lot of great opportunity and learning a lot. So, it, I mean, and that would be similar to a lot of people who 
you know, join the military for economic opportunity, for upward mobility, for an opportunity to go to college, right? And sort of, and some for serving the country, right? Like people believe that they want to serve this country in a different way. So that is certainly, and we've had conversations, it's so very interesting. We've had conversation with both those in the military about housing, um, particularly housing for those in the military. (laughs) And some of the issues that surrounding that, among other things. And so it's just interesting. Now I'm going to have to have you and them to come back to talk about military housing and, and the failures that we have in addressing policy as it pertains to affordable housing for those in the military. Absolutely. And not to say the military is for everyone, but the military is great for a lot of individuals who haven't decided where they want to go, their career path. And, 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 and you go to college debt-free, you come out of the military debt-free with, with some experience. You can't beat that and travel the world if you like. And so um, I encourage everyone to look at both going to college or going to the military temporarily and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely when we're not in war. <laughs> so, I, you know, as I described to you, And as you describe in um, your book, which we're going to talk about extensively a bit later, and as I said in the upfront, I wanted to have sort of a primer conversation about creating housing policy in this country. Housing is for a number of Americans, a number one issue and the affordability of housing, because for most people, that's where majority of their income is going to, is being able to provide shelter for themselves and for their families. And, you know, I want to start off before we get into details about descriptions and what affordable means and things of that nature. I want to uh, give you an opportunity to sort of set the stage of where we are as a country as it pertains to housing in general, particularly given this context of a COVID reality where people are continuing to push forth moratorium, whether it be on rent, on addressing home ownership. You know, what is your overall temperature check of where we are as it pertains to housing in the country? Well, let me go back to something that you pointed out about the number one issue is housing. The number one issue of housing is people are individuals who don't have housing or people are struggling to maintain housing. If housing was in the top five discussion with all these politicians, congressional staff and so forth, maybe we might be a little bit further into establishing a national housing policy. As you know, there is none today. There hasn't been any national housing policy in probably the last 30 years that ties in resources to Congress to provide those resources to individuals who need housing. And I don't want to talk about affordable because that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but we have no direction. Practitioners are doing a great, a lot of great things across this country. They're building housing where they can. The resources are, are always limited and we're always being lambasted by why we can't get this done or get that done. You know, when people criticize us, hey, we got some vacant land in there, how come you can't build housing? It's not that simple. Any housing authority across the country has federal rules, which is the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. We have a certain statute and requirements and a lot of red tape to build just affordable housing. And what we miss is that we're not getting these developers, these profit developers to build more affordable housing in conjunction with the house that they're building with market rate. There's not enough mixed income housing, true mixed income housing. You know, if you're building a 500 unit development and you're only getting 44 affordable housing, that doesn't help 
the affordable housing industry. You know, we keep regurgitating numbers. We have uh, 5 million homes that we need across this country. It keeps escalating, but it never keeps going down. And no one's accountable. No one's saying, hey, look, here's, here's where we start the point, and here's where we want to end. Just like the homeless investors program. They had a, uh, they had a starting point, they had a middle point, and they're getting close to the end point. But we're not doing that. We're not bringing everyone holistically about housing. You need housing in everything that you do, healthcare, education, transportation. But we're all separate, and we're all separate and, and not equal, and that's the issue. Housing, we always have to beg Congress for adequate resources, and we still can't get there. There's still an explanation, well, we can't do it this year. We can do it next year or the following year. We're not, we don't have anything concrete every year that we can count on to fix housing the way we need and we, we, we think we can. There's too many um, pie-in-the-sky issues. There's too many studies. We have a study after this, study after that. The numbers are the numbers. They're not going to change. They're always going to go up. They're not going to go down until we harness and we all sit there and we figure this out. Someone's got to be accountable at the top level and provide adequate resources. Now, shame on us if we can't get, if we get the resources, we can't produce the housing. But that has never happened yet. So let us let us try. Let us try. There are so many smart people across this country that can build housing and build quality housing in quality neighborhoods, but we're lacking the resources and trying to do away with the red tape, which is always hard. So let me stay right there a second in terms of the federal responsibility, because I want to go all the way down the line. Federal responsibility, sure. state responsibility, local you know, responsibility. So let's stay at federal right now. And this is can be said to a lot of different issues in our country and an overall guidance or a national strategy, if you will, on housing in this country. And it's not just, as you mentioned, obviously we need the funding in order to do that, but that there should be some direction. There should be, we know what rules and regulations on the federal level prohibit different um, city uh, localities and uh, states from acting the way in which they need to. So I want you to sort of pull out for us, and I think you have a whole chapter in your book about this, what would be a national strategy or what do we need to include in a federal strategy or policy on housing in this country? I guess we need to take the assessments that everyone keeps making an assessment about the need for affordable housing and then sit down and say, what does that mean? You got to get the right people at the table. Uh, you don't need the, the college uh, uh, individuals that, who say, gives you and tells you the numbers all over again. You really need to pair in the practitioners and a local politician to sit down and say, okay, here's our strategy. We need a nationwide strategy, which means that we're resourcing all at the same time. How do we separate that for each state and their, and their various needs? There needs to be something in black and white so that Congress sees this every year and can add, adequate, adequate resources to it, just like the Department of Defense, just like HHS, just like any other federal agency. How come we can't do the same thing and not beg for our money and our resources every year? The numbers are the numbers. They're not going to change. And so when can we be in a position where we, if we have a national housing policy, everyone agrees to that you tie into the resources that we can pull that information out and start building, put us on a time schedule so that we can be accountable. If we say that we can produce 50,000 affordable housing in the, in the Northwest, then that's going to be the charge. Everyone in the Northwest understands here's our charge. Here's how we're going to do this. 
and looking at every type of opportunity to provide housing pr preservation, uh, all the tax credit opportunities that we have. How can we fund these developments and get them done quicker than what we're doing right now and do away with the red tape? So, but That's speaking to problem. that point, speaking to that point about the red tape and, you know, because you're mentioning policies on the federal level that prohibit states and localities from acting upon, you know, some states and localities may have their own playbook of how they want to address housing. I know New York City is one, right, where everybody has their own respective plans. And, you know, we still live in a state's rights, you know, local government situation, right? And so letting them determine what's best for them. What are some of the things on the federal level that prohibit states and localities from executing on those plans and strategies on the ground? It, takes, it just takes a matter of time to pass, these, pass this information through the, the regulator, which is HUD. And so you have environmental issues, you have um, uh, praise values, you have different mechanisms in which um, you have to jump over a hoop in order to get there to get HUD to approve your, your site plan, your, your building plan, your, 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 uh, your marketing strategy, and your, your mixed income housing. And so you got to bring all those components together. You got to bring not only the neighborhood, the community. You got to bring the city. You got to bring the state in. Everyone has to be in in a, in a in a matter of approval of you starting just breaking ground to get a development on its way. And it's it's always tied into to funding, but you have to cross your T's and dot your I's. And there's no there's no forgiveness. The difference is, let me give you an example. When I was in Toronto, Toronto had no U.S. Department of Housing and Development. What happened is that the federal government funded the provincial government. The provincial government gave that money to the uh, city, and the city gave it to the, the social housing entity that was responsible. And so they built, based on what the, the city ordinance and the city laws uh, uh, asked you to do. So you didn't have anyone you had to go to and say, oh, can we do this? Can we do it that way? Um, it, it takes time. It takes time. Not blame the HUD, not blame the U.S. Department of Housing. It is what it is. You have to go through a, a process in order to get to the end game. And the end game in our in our world is a lot longer than it is in the private sector. And if we can ease some of that red tape and we can always under, we can come together and understand that this is if 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 we're waiting too long, if it takes us five years to get to breaking ground, that same dollar that we've uh, earmarked for, you know, in one year, that that same dollar it has lost its value five years later. So now you got to redo the numbers again, and then you have less affordable housing. You may have more market. So it's always tricky trying to balance that equation. And so when you go to your board or you say, "Hey, look, we want to start out with 550 units. Uh, it took us five years because they had to put the finance together, trying to get new market tax credits, trying to get low income tax credits, and we got to the point where we still have a gap. We still have to fulfill the gap." It's not the developer's responsibility, it's always the housing agency's responsibility or the entity who is trying to build mixed income housing. And it just it just exacerbates the whole system. Unless we have an opportunity which you have professional people at the table who are trying to provide and protect taxpayers' dollars, let us do our job and let us do as well. Yeah, there's gonna be some misses, there's gonna be some missteps and so forth. We've done that all over the year. But we learn with best practices. 
Well, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to move from the federal level talking about housing authorities and the responsibility that housing authorities across the country have in providing or creating housing. And then I want to get your take on that affordability definition, um, which gets thrown around a lot. So we'll have more with Eugene Jones on housing and how you build and sustain housing um, in this country and address housing policy overall when we come back here on Sunday Civics. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are here with Eugene Jones talking about housing. We had a whole conversation or brief conversation on the federal role in housing. And so far, Eugene, what I'm taking away, our takeaway from that first part of our conversation is that there are policies and red tape, all of those things, regulations that exist on the federal level that we need to either tighten up, that we need to remove in order to push forth building housing in this country faster That's number one. And the second in that the federal government needs to actually create a nationwide strategy on providing housing. And then the last thing I would say is that they actually need to put up some money (laughs) so that the state and local governments will have the resources in order to make that happen. That's the three takeaways so far, right? Absolutely. Okay. So now let's move to, I want to get a baseline from you, from a practitioner in this field on the affordability definition. Because for me, affordability means something different in Manhattan, in Brooklyn versus Brooklyn, versus Iowa, <laughs> versus, you know, Atlanta, right? Like there, there is, affordability is not consistent across the board all throughout the country, but what should be consistent is that it is at a price point that people can normally afford. But I want to get your take on it. Yeah, so what is normally to you can afford? I mean, if I'm working at UPS, my affordability is X. And if I'm working at, um, I'm a CEO of uh, McDonald's, my affordability is this. You know, I can I can afford a $50 million home versus if I work at UPS and I'm just a, a, a driver, I can only afford this. And so, you know, unless we pay a living wage, we, we're just never going to get this. I mean, the opportunity for someone who works who works at UPS trying to get a home is, is a daunting task. You have to have a two-person income or you're working two jobs, and then you barely make the, 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 the minimum requirements of a, of, of a home. And we, we're getting away from home, home ownership. Home ownership is, is creates wealth in any community, in the black and brown community. And we're getting away with that, saying that, okay, let's just rent and let's just call it a day. No, we should be getting more homeowners uh, and, and we should make it affordable. We have, we don't have a, we have a matrix right now. You know, it's, it's between 80, uh, 80 to 60% below area median income, that's affordable. But if you're not making that, you know, teachers, police officers, they're, 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 they're working, working poor. There's still that dream it's not like years ago uh, trying to get a home right now because there's too many obstacles. Um, wait, 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 wait. So I want to go to home ownership in a bit. I want to stay on affordability. Does affordability require ownership or is it or should it be focused on making sure that people have decent shelter in general? 
they should have a quality of life issue, and that's the affordability. If 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 I'm a uh, single parent with two kids, my affordability is this where I want to live at. We're being forced to live in areas in which we don't want to, but because of the the, the level of the rent and so forth, puts us in there. So we never have opportunity to live in uh, more progressive areas, which has better uh, schools, less crime, uh, better recreation, all those types of things that we, we're asking for, the cost of living or the, or the um, rents are too high. And so you're sitting there, your aspiration, you, you can't even rent over there, let alone try to buy a house. And so my affordability goes back to the poverty impact areas in which I'm still not going to be able to gain, but I can just maintain a life living standard that's not really acceptable, but that that's what I can only afford. And we, we're always putting ourselves in a box, but there's not an opportunity outside the box to live in a quality uh, area in which we, we should enjoy. I mean, this, the, the, the issue is in, in public and assisted housing, you, you, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, you have a mobility and you're trying to bring residents from living in a poverty impact area to an area, let's say Midtown in Atlanta, where the rents are much higher. The rents could be $1,800 for a two bedroom versus in the poverty impact area, the, the rent could be $800. So you sit there and say, okay, well, let me see if I can try to start moving residents into uh, a better neighborhood and, and allow HUD to approve that, which they can. But then advocacy groups come back to you and say, whoa, why would you let them move over there and pay $1,800 worth of rent versus telling them to stay back in a poverty impacted area, which you can get two families for the price of the one in a, in a nicer neighborhood? Why would you do that? And so you sit there and you say, you get slapped on the, on the face twice while trying to trying to get people to have, raise their quality of life issues, this is where they want to live. They have better schools, better neighborhoods, better opportunities for their kids. Yeah, but that's a little bit too high. We don't think we should be paying that tax dollars. We should just sit there and try to manage better housing in poverty impacted areas. You just can't do both. You can try to, you can try to increase the quality of life issues in poverty impacted areas, but everyone's in the same boat. And so how do we, how do we stretch that and start doing and start looking at gentrification gentrification, which is a, you know, glorious name that everyone uses saying that, you know, we're trying to move people out of neighborhoods in which they've been in a long, long time, but they haven't figured it out. Um, it's a holistic approach. You just can't put someone in housing and leave them there and say, okay, hey, it's a numbers game. It's the aftermath. And we don't understand an aftermath. Where would you, where are you supposed to be at when you get, when you're moving into or society in a different type of area, where should you be at? And that's yeah. been, that's been the, no one's done an evaluation. If, if you're doing mixed income development, where should you be at from day one in the next five years? Where should you be at? Yeah. Okay. So you said a whole lot in there that I want to sort of like unpack here, right? Because yeah. to a certain extent, you know, I can see that argument of take why, why do we need to take people out of an environment, you know, out of their community environment? to pay more for them to, you know, be, I, I get that uh, question, right? Because why can't we invest resources in the area in which people are before people are displaced, right? What are the things that people need, which we know of, in a community to increase the quality of life in that community, to make that community just as good, you know, as a community where the rent is $1,800 and has, you know, better resources, right? Or before, right. quote, gentrification happens. What right. happens is that there is more resources, there are more dollars, there are more, 
you know, the schools get better, the economic opportunities get better, that all of those things get better. And it seems to follow a certain uh, white person or income level. But from the advocate standpoint, they're saying, why can't we invest those same type of resources in those areas compel landlords or building owners to actually keep their buildings and you know quality of uh life to right, a certain right. standard or you lose your property like why is the why is the why is the uh burden sort of on keeping these landlords or keeping these buildings at dilapidated status what if we change the policy to be like if you don't provide adequate you know, quality of life in your buildings and keep repairs, then you lose your building. Right. It's it, 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 uh, boy, it's like a slippery slope. I mean, in most cities, and let's take the housing choice voucher, Section 8 program, a lot of landlords don't have to accept a Section 8 voucher at all. And so if you're in, if you're in an area in which you have not enough uh, quality housing, and not enough you kind of lost, you kind of lost. Um, where, where do you find where can you where can you find housing you're, you're at a loss in, in any of these neighborhoods and so when you when you're looking at multifamily you're looking at trying to rebuild a neighborhood you're not looking at the holistic approach of, of a neighborhood what is lacking in a neighborhood what can we build upon that and then take that and invest it in, a, in, in that in that neighborhood and keep it keep it maintained you if you have HUD housing in the neighborhood Try to preserve that. Try to make it better. Try to provide resources in neighborhood, single-family homes, and also duplexes uh, and, and fourplexes and so forth to build upon the neighborhood. But you got to put resources in there instead of taking away. Well, we want to just build in another neighborhood and try to move people into another neighborhood instead of taking those great neighborhoods and doing it vice versa. Let's do reverse. If I live in a great neighborhood, I want to live in a historic neighborhood. How come I can't change that pattern and say, okay, if I lived over here, I want to move back into this neighborhood because it's flourishing now. You have to have better schools, you have to have better neighborhoods. You know, individuals are, are determining where they live at based on the schools. If there's a grading system, if the school system, the elementary school grade system is from A to D, and you're in the C, C uh, classification elementary school, the likelihood of parents moving into that neighborhood is, is, is drastically reduced. But if you have an A uh, elementary school in that poverty impacted neighborhood, that provides some opportunities and hope to build upon that so people can reverse moving into those communities with their parents grew up in, their relatives grew up, change, change, change the pattern back. And then that can be the, 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 the keystone to affordable housing and maintaining those neighborhoods. It's, 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 a, it's a city, it's a planner, it's everyone making a, a, a conscious effort to do this, but it, 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 it takes long term. It's not something that can, be, uh, can change overnight. It just cannot be. So, Eugene, I mean, from my perspective, like I've always believed that, you know, for, you know, here in New York City, we have like a list of the worst landlords in the city. And what's interesting to me, you know, and this is a recent phenomenon, in the, I think in the last 15 years or something that that list was created. But what's interesting is the people on that list are known, right? It's the same people. They're on the list year after year. You know, everybody knows they keep terrible buildings and yet they are still allowed to rent to people. I've, all, you know, thought about like different ways of 
you know, whether it's licensing people to rent or things like that and be like, you can't rent to nobody because one, you appear on this list all the time. Spot checking your buildings is never provided adequate heat. It always looks like trash. You're not doing minor upgrade, like all of the kind of stuff. So you shouldn't be able to rent to people whether they got a Section 8 voucher, a HUD, you know, in a HUD program or any market rate. You shouldn't be allowed to rent to anybody because you have demonstrated that you are not capable of maintaining a building. So yes, you can own the building. You can't rent to nobody. You can't rent like to no commercial tenant, no like living tenant, nothing, right? And that is, is that not an incentive for people to actually maintain, just talking about renting for a, for a minute, right? To maintain a certain quality of life in in these buildings, and I'm just talking about renting because we're going to talk about you know home ownership in a minute. It's a it's a supply issue. It's all about money. If you take that one unit off, then you 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 you're taking that off the road, and no one there's something that you can't replace because a lot of uh, landlords don't want to uh, rent to uh, low income individuals in their city, and so if you take the ten units off. And that's 10 units that won't be able to uh, be housed anywhere. And what I'm what I'm saying is if your supply is lacking, people are desperate. They need something. And so that's why landlords take advantage of low-income people. Okay, hey, look, you, you can live here and there's mold and so forth, or you can live out on the street. And so we're low-income people are put in the middle and say, I gotta take something right now and make the best of a bad situation. And that's what's going on because there's a lack of supply. It was, was plentiful, that loan land would, would be probably in bankruptcy and so forth. But they know. They play the game. It's always about money. If I'm the worst landlord, I'm going to tend to be the landlord because no one's going to beat me out because there's a lack of affordable housing units and there's a lack of quality units in any city, and they take advantage of you. I, I, and we still keep renting. Where, where are we going to go? Where, where are the individuals going to go? Because the homeless, homeless population is going to increase. But doesn't that get into their but but doesn't that get into their pockets as well? The saying that you're not allowed to rent to anybody because like you can't maintain a certain level in your buildings. I mean, I would that would seem to me to hit them in the pocket. You can't rent to nobody. So then what they what they'll do is they take that that one unit that they were able to uh, uh, rent to low income people, find some money, take that unit bring it up to code and so forth and make it a market rate unit and then then it's gone you don't preserve any more affordable housing they'll do it that way because they'll make more money on the market instead of making uh, money on the section 8 program so not, they'll, if, you they'll, don't, they'll not if you don't allow them to rent to anybody whether it's low income if, or market if they improve that that, that that unit if they bring it up to code and so forth i don't see how you can stop them at all well, let, let, you know, a question that, you know, uh, June asks all the time is this, the, the difference between affordability, you know, affordable versus low-income housing, right? And from, you know, just from a general standpoint, is there a need for more income for uh, more housing, say, for middle-class, working-class folks versus low-income? Like, what is the the mix there? Because you keep mentioning mixed housing. It's always been, at least for me, from a, a policy and a political standpoint, that you actually want mixed housing. You want a mixture of wealthy, low income, working class, middle class. Those are the kind of projects and neighborhoods that actually succeed and thrive. Why is it so hard to create that perfect mix? It's not hard to create it. It just depends on the neighborhood and the city and the state that we, which you're in. 
Mixed-income developments have, have uh, by definition, have been a success across the country. And in many uh, cities, housing authorities, they use a, um, uh, a defined measure, a third market, a third tax credit, and a third low income. And so what you're saying is that a third of that can be market rate, a third of that can be tax credit, which means it's between 60, 80, and 60% 60 of area median income. And then uh, the other parts, portion could be um, uh, Section 8 housing or some type of uh, public housing uh, that the housing agency has bought in their mixed income development. The difficult part of that is bringing all the financing together. HUD gives you a, a certain portion that you can use on the development, tax credits from the state, uh, historical tax credit, new market tax credit, whatever we can put to finance that, that development. And then our Section 8, uh, how we can afford the rent. So you have to you have to have a, a mixture that you can pay down the debt. And so people a lot don't really understand is that you have a debt you have to pay. So the unit mix, is very indicative of how you pay down the debt. You have to have so many markets, so many uh, tax credits, and low income, but they got to pay the debt and they got to pay off the expenses uh, of that development. And so that's the key to why does it take so long to put a mixed income development together. Once you do and put all the financing together, it's a great opportunity to provide resources that um, the public housing used to be in is more thriving because you have different walks of life. You have different opportunities for the kids. You have better neighborhoods, better schools, and less crime in those neighborhoods. And they work all over the country. But the model that we use across the country is different in every state and every city. But um, Congress has not embraced it like they should and say, hey, look, we have a model. We have a foundation. How do we get this more to fruition instead of uh, waiting five to ten years for this financing to get together? It's just a daunting task, but we do it. Mm. So the the other question, because you're bringing in the the, the federal pieces as, as well as we're you know throughout, is on AMI. And AMI is area median income, right? And I know here in New York City, this has been an issue for us for some time because our area <laughs> is you know one New York City where you have a full range of incomes, even within a mile of each other, if not, you know, sometimes blocks of each other, and also includes places like Westchester, which skews a higher income, right? So like our area has sort of this huge band that saying even people at 80% or 60% of that area median income, you know, you think about average, you know, sort of creating a median between, you know, a working class city worker for Department of Sanitation or a middle class person, you know, versus someone who owns multiple homes and works on Wall Street and their income is something half a million dollars a year, right? Like that's an extreme band in trying to create uh, housing policy for those different categories. And like I said, it's extreme in urban metropolitan areas, New York City, California, you know, Los Angeles, New York, right, where you have people concentrated in a smaller area versus if you go to Indiana or Kansas or Arkansas, where people are more spread out. And so the area that they are looking at for the, the median income is a bit you know, larger. Can you talk a bit about how that impacts housing policy? I know there is legislation in Congress to try to address that right now, but talk a bit about how area median income or the AMI affects our housing as well. 
Well, it just only it, it, it only determines what what you uh, establish your rent when you uh, looking at uh, unit mix when you build a mixed income development. So what you're saying is that the tax credit units they have to be between six and eighty percent of median income. So they're saying that a family of four, um, their income has to be between let's say sixty thousand, eighty thousand in order to afford the rent that we get ready to build in the mixed income development. That's what they use it for. And that's based on that those numbers, that's how they make the, the development work. And so, you know, in New York, San Francisco, LA, those high cost areas, it's so limited, so very limited in those cost in those high cost areas to even find a unit. You know, people sit there and say, Well, they got no, they're not out there. We're 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 fooling each other. It's just not. And once you get in there, if you get in there at all, then you're talking about utility is a little bit different, although they pay that based on uh, their income. Uh, you're talking about um, transportation. You're talking about location to job. And you're talking about child care because you're taking that whole element out of, out of, out of that one person and say, okay, now, do I live way over there in the boroughs and, and, and I, I work over there in downtown Manhattan? You're making life choices that you sit there and say, well, I, I can't do that. And that's why a lot of people don't relocate to these other areas because they just can't do it. They just can't afford it. Transportation, child care, what time to get at home and so forth. So, you know, the, the whole system, I'm not saying the whole system is broken, but the whole system needs to be changed because it's not working. We're putting together it's, it's the best that we can based on the, our resources, the regulation, uh, the, 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 the talented people that we have at the table to make this work. But we, when, we're, we're pecking at the order. We're paying, we're getting minimum, we're getting the bare minimum instead of getting the medium or the maximum to try to maximize affordable uh, housing in our area. You know, people create tiny homes, modular homes, all those types of things, all the different in different localities. But we're, we're, we're fooling each other when we, when we put ourselves on the back and say, hey, look, we got 44 affordable housing units today. I, I love it, but it's not nearly enough when it comes to all the market rate that they're building in any community across this country. In New York, it's, 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 people are just, you know, in Toronto, Toronto is a high-cost area just like New York. It's probably even more. When I went to a, a, a public housing unit in Toronto, in Toronto, I walked into the unit. They had a hardwood floor. Public housing, they had a hardwood floor. What it's saying to me is that we will never leave social housing in Toronto because we can't afford anything on the market. So I'm going to make my living conditions the best I can living in social housing in Toronto because I, I, I just can't afford it. And that's where it's coming to. Well, what can I do to increase my quality of life in the unit where I'm living in? Because I know I can't live outside of where my comfort zone is being subsidized by the U.S. Uh, federal government in, in, in Canada or in the United States. That's what it's getting to. We're, and, and, you, and you're scared. You don't want to complain. You're living in squalid conditions. You got mold. You have water dripping. You have dampness. You have everything that you can. But if you complain, you're booted out and you have nowhere else to go. What, what's your alternative? Where are your options? There are advocate groups that are, that are, that are doing a, a, a great job, but we're just not listening. We're just not listening. We're just not listening. And we and, and the children are not eating. Children, you know, mentally, physically, um, the older individuals, they're just they're, they're living by existence and not by the opportunity to enjoy their rest of their lives or the kids trying to grow up. I know well, I said we're 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 going to take our last break here and then when we come back I want to talk about creating housing for 
not special categories, but different categories, whether that's homeless population, we talked about briefly military. And, you know, if we already have a crisis and not enough housing in general for people, you know, now it makes more sense to me as the reason why we can't address the millions of people who are on the streets are and homeless right now. But we'll, we'll come back and talk more about that um, when we come back. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are here with Eugene Jones talking about housing in the United States and Toronto, Canada. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to, you know, and again, this is a, you know, sort of beginning of the myriad of issues that are involved in providing housing, as I think your book says, housing human beings, and and what that includes. And we've had a number of conversations on the show talking about people who are homeless and there are different, you know, people's view or perception of homeless is street homeless, people who are living on the street. But as we've talked about on the show before, majority of people who are homeless are children. There are particularly mothers with children who um, are homeless or people who are what we call couch surfing. They don't have a home of their own. And so they're, you know, shacking up, living with, or, you know, piled in with each other until they can get themselves into a position to get housing on their own. And Eugene, as you were talking about the status of housing affordability across the country in general, it now clicks in my head and makes more clear the reason why we have such a problem of getting people off the street or into a home of their own, even if they're on someone else's couch or in someone's living room, is that we just simp- we don't have enough housing stock and, and programs and resources available in order to get people into homes. Is that the case? Well, I'll say that uh, 50-50. I, I think um, some communities, some cities across the country do have the resources and they do have the housing. And But what, I, what I've always uh, talked around the country, there's three types of house, uh, homeless people. And in fact, there's a lot of homeless who are living in cars that are not counted in the, the count when they talk about homeless. But there's three uh, different types of homeless people. One, uh, the homeless, the first category, the ones who just need a one-up to get out of their, their situation and to get get some uh, get a roof over their head, but also they have to have services. You just can't take a homeless person, plop them in a, a unit and say, okay, here's a numbers game. We, we took 10 people off the uh, homeless streets and now they're in the housing. It, you gotta provide, you gotta wrap around services. That's, that's the first one. The second category of people who have alcohol addiction, drug addiction and so forth, they're, they're, they are, they have special needs. They need to be addressed a, a different way and so again, they need to be case studied and and, and what social services uh, uh, entities do. And then the third category is mental health, and they're all three separate. And and we don't address it that way. We we put them all in one category and say, okay, here it is. That's not here it is. First of all, you need housing, but once you have housing, you got to have wraparound services to determine and to select and to uh, to to monitor and to um, uh, push something forward. Of, of a success on, on, on bringing people, homeless people, to where they need to be. And I think that's the part that we, we just don't figure out. We, it's a numbers game. You know, let's put them in housing. We took them off the street. We're feeling good about ourselves, yada, yada, yada. Now, next week or next month, they could be back on the street homeless because no one's providing them um, case study or, or case workers and 
what they need to do to stay off the streets and stay prosperous and so forth and also get the right care that they need at the right time. And, and so we're not pairing that. There are a lot of services. There are a lot of entities who have, who have resources that we're not just putting them together. You have a veterans um, homeless population, which we provide vouchers. In any city, you can, you can, you can tell it's just the, the different federal government agencies are not connecting, uh, communicating um, well enough or outreach enough so that we can, you know, put it together. Um, some of them do it well, some cities do it better, some cities don't do it at all because it's just it's lack of communication. So those resources go wasted because we can't put two and two together. It's outreach, it's collaboration. Uh, a lot of cities do it well, a lot of cities do it uh, better than others, uh, but it's just not, um, it, it's not uh, a continuing uh, success like it should be across this country. We got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the other pieces that we are talking about, and you may mention of this several times, is regarding home ownership. And, you know, part of me feels that, you know, a number of people push home ownership, obviously because of its benefits, because of its, you know, wealth creation in communities, obviously stability that it provides in communities, things of that nature, right? But, home like trying to get people front to home ownership in this country there's a pathway needed right because there for a lot of people they don't have the resources they don't have the education or the credit or the income that would allow them to not only um be in a home but sustain that home that then it's not taken away from them from a tax lien sale, you know, from so so many different other things. So I, I want to sort of give you a moment to sort of talk about that home ownership piece is, and this is some a question I have, and maybe I'm naive about, is the lack of affordable rent units is part of the problem in that there are people still renting that should be moved to home ownership or should be able to purchase a home and sort of then free up more rental units, but they're stuck at rental because they don't have, you know, the wealth, the income, the education or, or resources in order to move to home ownership. Well, this, 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 and you make a good point, a, a, a good statement. Um, first of all, a lot of people on a subsidized program, not, not all of them, uh, very comfortable being on that program because we, an agency provides all the resources in order for you to live in a quality of life. That means if your toilet overflows, there'll be a plumber there to fix it. If there's mold in your unit, there'll be someone to go in there and clean it up and fix it, move you out. There's a whole bit, a whole different uh, apparatus of, of staying in place. Home ownership is scary. That means that if I get a home and so forth, uh, I live in a home, I got a home, um, now, if the, if the electricity go out, I have to decide what I'm going to do. Do I call the utility companies? Is there a fuse out? I have to learn how to maintain that home. If the, if the toilet backs up, I got to go get a plunger or I got to go get, uh, call a plumber and say, hey, look, uh, I need a, a plumber to come over. And then I have to come out of pocket in order to get that fixed. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a choice. It's an option. Uh, we have two programs, uh, Family Self-Sufficiency, we have a rented home on the Section 8 side, FSS on the public housing side. They go through a, 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 a program for about two to five years. We get their credit right. We get them a, a, aware about what happens when you, when you 
buy a home, how you stay in it. Every city, most of the cities across the country have homeowners assistance. They'll give you down payment assistance. It's, it's a great program, but you have to uh, uh, encourage, you have to uh, uh, provide a positive uh, attitude for residents to say, hey, look, this is something that's going to build in your future for your family future, your kids' future. Let's both do this together. It's the aftermath. You just can't get someone in a home and, 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 and say, hey, we got 500 homeownership uh, people who've been in our program for the last five years and forget them. It's the aftermath. Just take, take, take for advantage for this pandemic. A lot of people have lost their jobs. So those people who were in homes before the pandemic, are they still maintaining their home or are they facing eviction or are they facing uh, 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 the mortgage payments that uh, come due and that they're trying to get them evicted? It's a, it's, it's, everything's going against them. Once you lose that home, your credit rating goes, you're not going to be able to rent again. Landlords are not, not forgiving. It, it just keeps people who are low income, keeping them low income, and there's not an opportunity. There's no, they're, they're looking at the future and they're looking at it kind of grim. It's kind of, kind of gloomy. And I don't see anything, I don't see my way out of it. And it's, it's just, uh, it hurts. It's stressful and it hurts. Uh, to the core, just like we experienced in 2008, um, and not to say we experienced the same thing now, but the eviction moratorium, people have lost their jobs, people are getting their jobs back, but they're not being paid the way, way they were being paid before, or getting paid more. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, chances, a lot of decisions have to be made. Schools are down, schools are up, so it's, uh, you just don't know where you're going, where you're going to be at, and hopefully you can uh, make a determination, a smart determination of what's beneficial for your family. Eugene, I want to thank you. And as we told you, you know, the hour will go by really quick <laughs> in, in having this conversation, but it's a good sort of beginning of the conversation of the many different things that we need to think about as those of us who are in elected state positions, local positions, federal positions that listen to the show, policymakers and others. And as you mentioned, there is a lot of things we know, a lot of plans that are working that that we need to determine how do we scale um, to different parts of the country, but then also what, as you mentioned, the federal government's role is to uh, really help provide the resources, providing tax dollars, our money, right? It's not just Congress's money, it's ours. Um, and investing that into building housing that increases the quality of life of Americans all across the country. And different things are gonna work in different places, you know, because each area, each state is different. But I think being able to look at it holistically and create a plan, I think even from a federal level, you know, just the federal government saying that we want to provide housing, you know, for everyone in this country, for everyone in this country at a certain standard that is mixed. Like that alone is a level setting policy that allows states and localities to actually look at their plans differently by setting a baseline. If you want to get into the conversation of, you know, federal government having too much power and engagement in state and local areas, just having a, a basis of a value statement of what the federal government wants to be able to invest in and provide is important. Eugene, thank you so very much for joining Sunday Civics for your first time, hopefully not your last time as we continue this conversation. Thank you and very I much. want want to remind folks that you do have a, a book on this, Housing Human. Human. 
Yes. And so to delve more into this conversation, we'll be sharing a link out guarding the book and feel free to, you know, tweet at and message Eugene to ask much more because you definitely have uh, a background and a wealth of experience to do that. So thank you so very thank you much. Very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. All right, folks, thank you so very much for joining Sunday Civics for another Sunday Civics lesson. Uh, we'll be back with so much more this year. Like I said, we're continuing conversation on housing. We're also going to have a whole series on foreign affairs. We're also going to have a, a whole series, which I'm really excited about, about immigration and us understanding that process much more. So stay tuned all year to Sunday Civics, to your favorite neighborhood political strategist to give you the education and the civics lesson that we all deserve. Have a good one. It's who we are.